Hello, I'm James Carlton. Welcome to God Forbid. Indonesia has always been and will always be important to Australia. Even before colonisation, Aboriginal people traded with Indonesia. And today, that trade is worth nearly $20 billion. As our next-door neighbour, Indonesia will always be strategically important too. But today, on God Forbid, we're not looking at money or strategy or even the live cattle trade. And that should be clear when I introduce our first guest. In Bakalaman, central Java, formerly from Jakarta, we have Saktia Maruf, Indonesia's female stand-up comedian. She's so serious about making us laugh that she's the winner of the prestigious international award, the Vaclav Havel Prize for Creative Descent. Ramadan Mubarak, Saktiya Maruf. Welcome to God Forbid. Uh, Ramadan Mubarak to you too. Uh, thank you very much for having me. It's a pleasure. So tell me about your comedy. You're not afraid of taking on critics. <laughs> Well, uh, I'm afraid. I, I, I couldn't say that I'm not afraid, but I think uh, backlash is an important part of dialogue. And if I'm going to talk about me doing what I'm doing and uh, share my thoughts. Um, sorry, James, uh, there's a huge uh, truck just passed by and you hear me clearly. Very sorry that I have to double check. No, not at all. Indonesia's famous traffic okay. is adding a veneer of authenticity <laughs> to our conversation. Authenticity, okay. Um, uh, yes, I, I have been uh, working since uh, 2011 doing comedy. I'm not the only uh, Muslim female stand-up comedian, of course, one of the first. Most of uh, my themes are my experience uh, living in a conservative uh, hadrami. Arab descent uh, community in Pakalongan, Central Java, and I have uh, a new joke uh, during this uh, pandemic, for instance. So the past several years, some conservative Muslims groups in Indonesia have been relentlessly uh, campaigning about returning women to a domestic uh, sphere. And that uh, hijab, that was once a symbol of uh, liberations from a very tight control of new order towards Islam, now gradually shifted into an age-old uh, symbol of domestications of women. And then there has been messages circulating about the best place for women is at home. And I said on stage, well, thanks to coronavirus, the best place for men is now also at home. <laughs> That's wonderful, <laughs> except you'll uh, <clears throat> be all there together. Now, we also uh, turn to our next God Forbid panellist, Erwin Rinaldi. He's a senior journalist with the ABC's Asia-Pacific newsroom in Melbourne, where he writes stories in the English and Indonesian languages. Erwin, welcome to God Forbid. Hello, James. May peace be upon you. Alaikum salam on you too, my brother. Now, Erwin, you've actually reported, and we're going to talk to Sakti about this, you've actually reported on rice ATMs being installed in Jakarta. What's the situation there? Well, at the moment, um, the Indonesian government has rolled out the rice ATMs. And it's just like an ATM, but instead of money, it is dispensing rice around 1.5 kilograms for one person. Yes. Uh, that's... 
that's extraordinary. What happens if you forget your PIN number? Oh, you don't need a PIN number. <laughs> Dr. Vanessa <laughs> Heerman is our next guest on the God Forbid panel. She's in Darwin, the Australian city with the closest relationship to Indonesia, figuratively and literally. Dr. Vanessa Heerman, a senior lecturer in Indonesian studies at Charles Darwin University. Welcome to the show. Hi, James. Good to be here. Vanessa, what's your connection to Indonesia? Why is this your academic and professional work? Well, I was born in Indonesia and I spent all of my primary school years uh, in Indonesia before I moved to Australia at the age of 11. So for me, I speak the language fluently. Indonesia is, is um, you know, continues to hold me in its arms, I suppose. It's it's part of me and it's um, I still have family and relatives there. So um I guess I see myself as belonging to two places, both Indonesia and Australia, and perhaps many other places in between. Well, indeed, Indonesia has 17,000 islands, 600 different ethnicities. We're looking at that up next on RN, It's God Forbid. On RN, it's God forbid, we're with uh, Saktia Maruf, an Indonesian stand-up comedian. We're with Dr. Vanessa Heerman, a senior lecturer in Indonesian studies at Charles Darwin University, and Erwin Rinaldi, a senior ABC journalist from the Asia-Pacific newsroom. Saktia, to you first. There are 600 recognised ethnicities in Indonesia. You mentioned yours earlier, which was Hadrami. What is that? Mm -hmm. Uh, Hadrami is uh, Arab descent uh, ethnicity. So our ancestors came to Indonesia centuries before colonization. Uh, they came for uh, trade, of course, but uh, also part of uh, the spread of Islam in Indonesia. Hadrami uh, ethnicity, we mostly reside in uh, Indonesia, uh, Singapore and Malaysia. I see. And the Hadrami ethnicity actually stems from Yemen and they're perceived in the world of Islam, like, if, can I put it correctly, Liz, the purest of the pure when it comes to <laughs> the Quranic interpretation, yes? Uh, I usually, I usually on stage, I usually put it as um, we are, so mocking myself, uh, definitely, uh, we are quote-unquote the original Muslims. <laughs> yeah, and, and you, are, you are correct in terms of the way we are very, very passionate about uh, the truest of the true form of Islam, the purest of the pure uh, form of Islam. Uh, people usually ask me casually, so you're Hadrami, do you have to marry within uh, your community? And I said, well, one of my neighbors said that I do have to marry someone from within the community because if I marry outside, then their Islam may not be as pure as, uh, as ours. But then that very neighbor, during the wedding of their daughter with one Hadrami uh, gentleman uh, to prevent rain during the reception, that particular neighbor actually threw the bride's underwear on the rooftop to prevent it from raining. And I thought, wow, that is a very pure form of Islam that you are practicing. And so we're basically Indonesian, really, only uh, trying our best 
to maintain uh, the claim that we are uh, we are Arabs, and so and sometimes that takes a very very desperate measure, like putting underpants on a roof. What's the origin of that? Uh, Javanese superstition. <laughs> so, just for my own personal uh, use with my neighbours, if I put what underpants on a neighbour's roof, what's the uh, yeah. expected outcome? Uh, uh, not raining. Not raining. It'll so keep usually, the Wonderful. Yeah, so usually people people do that before receptions or galas or big events and things like that, just to, just to stop the rain. I suppose the <laughs> Indonesian Farmers Federation is hoping to have that superstition dispelled quickly. But let's... Uh, <laughs> yeah. Um, well, let's turn to Erwin Rinaldi, our ABC journalist colleague. Uh, you are not Javanese, the majority ethnicity in Indonesia, but Sundanese. Tell me about that. Yes, Sundanese are people from West Java, and we are being known for politeness, but at the same time also stylish. I don't know why, but that's more sort of like the <laughs> um, more sort of like the impression of people in yes. Indonesia. Someone from Sunda, they must be polite and they're stylish and, you know, they're also like um, talkative and uh, very funny at the same time. And if you see like many diplomats from Indonesia in, in overseas, they're coming from Sudanese ethnicity. So I think <laughs> there must be like a link between being able to represent themselves in in the very fashion way and also the way they talk. <laughs> mm. If the if the Sundanese, not Sudanese, but Sundanese in Indonesia, Sundanese, the second yeah. largest ethnic group, if they are polite and stylish, does that mean their neighbours on the island of Java, the Javanese, are rude and unstylish? No, 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 no. I wouldn't say that. I, I wouldn't say so. No, 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 no. It, that, that's casual, not what that's I mean. Not unstylish, <laughs> casual. <laughs> yeah, maybe more casual. casual. But don't you casual. agree, Satya? Like, don't you agree, Satya, that Sundanese people we are like polite and more stylish? Oh, very much so. Very, very much so. Uh, uh, Sunda, the the the, uh, the West Java and also Sundanese ethnicity, uh, also Bandung, the capital of West Java, used to be called the uh, Paris Van Java, right? And yes, so, correct. Yes, yeah, Bandung, yes, the capital uh, of fashion. Yes, the capital. Yeah, that's where I was born, and this is why the reason I chose a Melbourne offer Sydney because. I found a couple of similarities between Bandung and Melbourne. You know, we are very good in terms of like arts and embracing the cultural diversity and food and coffee and books and also like fashion. So uh, I kind of like, um, yeah, Melbourne is my second home now. And um, I feel like in Bandung sometime with the weather also like a bit cooler uh, and the people are also very nice. But uh, lately, I also found Sydney ciders. They are also nice too. Well, Australians in general, you know, we're pretty laid back and nice, I would say. Well, let's turn to, in Darwin, Dr. Vanessa Heerman. In Indonesia, the founding philosophy is Panchasila. Uh, what does that mean? It's all about unity, religious, ethnic tolerance, yes, pluralism? So the Panchasila is the five principles it was founded by Indonesia's first president, President Sukarno, uh, in 1945. And it's about how the Indonesian state and society 
ought to be governed. So it's about monotheism, belief in one almighty God. It's about national unity. It's about But not a Muslim God, not Muhammad the prophet necessarily. No, it's not stipulated. And so the issue of the importance of Islam in the history of Indonesia and how that is remembered and practiced uh the importance that's accorded to Islam uh, is an issue of contention in Indonesia. Why does Islam not appear in the country's constitution and in uh, founding documents and philosophies like the Pancasila? So um, that's certainly an issue um, for some Muslims in Indonesia that Islam is not accorded its right role in the nation. There was a debate about the preamble to the Indonesian 1945 constitution, which was about the insertion of something called the Jakarta Charter, which would explicitly yeah. recognise the role of Islam in the constitution itself. So it didn't go through. It, so until today, the Indonesian 1945 constitution doesn't recognise explicitly uh, Islam within that preamble. But um, Vanessa Heerman, uh, Jakarta has had two Christian governors on that score. It sounds like Pancasila is thriving. But one of those governors, the most recent, Ahok, was jailed for two years for blasphemy, for saying his critics were misinterpreting the Quran. What do we make of this? Well, I think uh, it's a very difficult situation for many people coming from minority groups, such as ethnic Chinese, of which uh, Ahok hailed from. Outwardly, Indonesia is diverse and pluralist, but uh, when it comes down to it, it is very difficult to challenge uh, the status quo and the understanding that the highest level positions will be reserved for uh, Muslims. So it it just shows some of the limitations of what we see under reform. Masi, but also some of the limitations of Indonesia's diversity also. And last word on this section before we move on to you, Sakti Maruf. Are you a supporter of the founding philosophy, Panchasila, religious diversity, or do you think Islam, your faith, should be more prominently attached to the arms and administration of government? I wholeheartedly support Pancasila and most importantly, religious diversities. We have been upholding uh, diversity throughout the history of uh, Indonesia. We have the Sumpa Pemuda, the Youth Pledge in 1928, where young people from all across uh, Indonesia, well, not Indonesia at that time, but all across uh, former Dutch colony coming from different ethnicities, different religious backgrounds, etc., pledge uh, their uh, loyalty towards this idea of of one nation and one language. And I think uh, that we have to honor, uh, cherish, and continue this uh, legacy of uh, diversity and uh, pluralism in Indonesia because it is uh, a part of our strength, it is a part of our identity, it is a part of who we are. Well, indeed, Indonesia has 600 different ethnicities on our end. It's God forbid. Aside from being a popular tourist destination, Jakarta is also the economic and political hub of Indonesia, home to over 9 million people. But Jakarta is slowly sinking in some areas by 15 centimetres a year. And aside from that, the country's capital also faces flooding, severe gridlock, 
So last year, Indonesian President Joko Widodo announced a $50 billion US plan to relocate the country's capital. Adrian Vickers is Professor of Southeast Asian Studies at the University of Sydney. He told ABC's Hamish MacDonald why the new capital won't even be on the island of Java, but rather Borneo. Well, it's it's the part of Indonesia with the most available land. So there's a, a kind of short answer and then there's a long answer that there's been quite a history of choosing th- that island or the Kalimantan, the Indonesian part of Borneo, as a prospective capital going back to the 1950s. So in terms of moving the capital, what are we talking about? An administrative capital? Is this the sort of Naypyidaw, Putrajaya model that the Myanmar and the Malaysian governments have pursued, where you, where you sort of have an administrative location for the capital, but but your bigger city remains the, the, the financial centre. Uh, that seems to be what's what's going to happen. All the indications are that it'll be moving civil servants, um, moving the centre of government and a whole range of government instrumentalities. But the business centre will remain in Jakarta because that's where all the money and all the investments are. And what happens to the situation uh, that Jakarta is facing in terms of sinking land, rising waters, all the rest of it? Yeah, every year there's worse and worse floods there. Um, sometimes the floods have affected even the presidential palace and there doesn't seem to be any solution. And, and partly the floods are the result of land development further inland and, and nobody's putting a stop to that. And then add to the fact that uh, bore water is being used so the whole of the area of Jakarta is sinking. I mean, there are those that say the Putrajaya experiment in Malaysia hasn't worked particularly well. I think the jury's still out on Naypyidaw. Is there anything to suggest that this is actually going to be a success? Um, it is very hard to say. Uh, in, in, in the sense that Jakarta is becoming unworkable as a city, then you can see why that would be a solution. I mean, the traffic jams are just so bad in Jakarta that you lose half of your business day or more just trying to get from meeting to meeting. So, yeah, that that part of it might work. But as I've said, there, it, there will be the problem of persuading people to move and then there's a, a whole lot of vested interests um, and there's questions of who exactly is going to pay for it. Some of it will be government money, but where's the other funding going to come from? Um, there's a lot of question marks still. That's Professor of Southeast Asian Studies, Adrian Vickers, in conversation with ABC's Hamish MacDonald. We'll put a link to their full conversation on the God Forbid website. Obviously, those plans to move the capital are very much on hold because of COVID-19, but presumably it will continue at pace. We're hoping to start to move people within five years. Saktia Maruf, if the capital does move, do Javanese Indonesians relate well yeah. with the Indonesians on the island of Borneo or is this a, a false distinction? A, no line exists between the two in terms of identity and outlook? Um, uh, yes, I mean, uh, if uh, I'm talking from the point of view of the Javanese uh, inside of me, there has been transmigration and uh, we have a very strong and wide uh, Javanese community all across Indonesia, in Lampung, Sumatra, for instance, and in many parts, many provinces, in Kalimantan as well. But we have to also remember a history of 
conflicts between people from Java Island and I think the young people of Indonesia, we want to see a clear plan, including how the new government will be, for instance, more environmentally friendly. We have been very worried about that. You know, when we're moving to Kalimantan, will we risk the environment? Well, last word on this to Dr. Vanessa Herman. Um, what's your response to the uh, idea of moving the capital of Indonesia? I think it's true that Jakarta is fast becoming unsustainable. However, the choice of Kalimantan seems quite arbitrary. And one of the reasons influencing that choice was that it was in the middle of the country. So it was accessible from all sides. However, as Sagdia has already mentioned, the issue of the Indigenous people and uh, impact on biodiversity on Kalimantan, where logging and palm oil plantations have gone on for a very long time and added to that the history of conflict, thanks to transmigration during the Suharto era, really the question is, is this a new form of colonization? Organization coming from Java onto a people who have little say in what happens. So I've seen on President Jokowi's Instagram accounts, there have been people responding to this proposal from Kalimantan saying, please be aware about uh, us as people from Kalimantan and take care of our environment in the process of moving the capital. You've got to be aware of those issues. Okay. On RN, it's God forbid how fascinating that the new capital of Indonesia, chosen because it's right in the middle of the archipelago, just as the capital of Australia, Canberra, formerly good sheep country, was chosen because it's halfway between Melbourne and Sydney. Up next on RN God Forbid, we're looking at Indonesians in Australia, a centuries-old community. There are maybe 100,000 Australians with Indonesian heritage, and in Darwin, Indonesian traditions and food and other aspects of culture have long been very significant in that city's cultural landscape. Reverend Tracy Marboy Wongara was born in West Timor in Indonesia, but she's lived in the Northern Territory for 28 years, and she's also moderator of the Northern Synod of the Uniting Church. Rowan Salmond asked her, what's the Indonesian community like in Darwin? Really good because, you know, they, all the uh, Indonesian people coming, they're coming from different parts of Indonesia, like, say, mm-hmm. like Sumatra, Java, Jakarta, West Timor. Yeah, it's uh, sort of a misnomer to say Indonesian culture because Indonesia is itself very multicultural. Um, and obviously that's reflected in the uh, different groups in the um, Indonesian diaspora in Darwin and elsewhere in the country. Yes. Yes, that's true. Because, you know, in Indonesia, they have a lot of uh, people background, like people from Timor are different than people from Sumatra or Jakarta or Java or Solo. And they, but uh, of course, you're talking about diaspora. We all together because we in, in this place, we, we try to live in together one and another. Now, are, are there any, you know, tensions or difficulties because people are, are different to each other or is there more of a um, unified identity? I think we try, of course, you know, we're coming from the different back- background, but when we get it together, we bring the unity. 
And, you know, that's beautiful and amazing. Of course, sometimes tension because uh, people from Timor, the way they speak different than people from Java. You know, people from Java, very soft, but people from Timor, the very strong voice, like me. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> and they speak different languages too. Yes, yeah. different language, different dialect, and um, that's huge. Indonesian very huge about that. Like me coming from West Timor, my dialect different than people from Sumatra or from Java. Mm. Yeah. And how about religion? Because um, Indonesia is obviously a majority Muslim country um, and you are a Christian minister. How is yeah. that for you? For me, I'm really enjoying my time and my my role as a minister because I'm learning from Indonesia too because my city uh, in Timor are mostly more bigger than uh, Christian and Muslim and Catholic. But how we're working together, respect, the key for living in harmony, the respect to one and another, the why people worship God. In my family, my brother, my own brother, married with Muslim, and she's still Muslim. And now, during the time of Ramadan, we support her. We try mm. to follow her when she's fasting. We make sure when we're eating, we have to far away from her, and we prepare for her when uh, time for her to open, you know, pray and very respect. Because mm. that's if you want to live in harmony, you have to respect one and another. And you are the uh, moderator of the Northern Synod of the Uniting Church. Yes. Um, that is also a highly multicultural uh, synod of the Uniting Church. You yes. have, you know, Anglo people, Indigenous people, Indonesian people, um, and different congregations have different cultural identities. How do you balance all of that as a leader of that synod? That's a really good question. <laughs> really good question. And, you know, I'm very strong uh, culture background, but I try to control not to apply my culture in uh, in my ministry. And as you know, my um, I'm very strong connection with the first people. Mm. Um, and um, they for the first people, they very um, you know how you respect them, the way they're doing things. So you're not coming and tell, this is what we want to do, but how are we working together? How are we working together in, in many ways, but to find a way to enjoy our time and our worship together in God. So I think that's very important for all of us in every role to see, um, not coming and tell, oh, no, this is the order of session. We have to follow. This is what we want. But talking to them with respect, oh, this is the why you're doing the worship. Okay, let's enjoy it together. And, you know, doing things in different way. That's how God uh, brings us all together. That's the Reverend Tracy Mauboy Wongara, moderator of the Uniting Church's Northern Synod. Well, Vanessa Hearman, you and she both live in Darwin. How vivid is the Indonesian presence in the cultural landscape of that city? Well, it's certainly true. It's a very multicultural city. So I moved here from Sydney and it's um, sometimes it's hard to uh, think that you are in Australia. Uh, it's tropical outside and there's people from 
all different countries uh, here, not just from Indonesia, but all over Southeast Asia. The East Timorese have a very uh, big community here as well. Vietnamese migrants who are farming on the outskirts of Darwin who provide a lot of the city's produce. So we really benefit from that in terms of the street food scene of Darwin, which really attracts um, a lot of Southeast Asians who feel very at home here in the city because it reminds them a lot of uh, back home and it's also very close to return cheaply to their countries of origin and, and visit their families. So um, living in a, in a highly multicultural environment, it really enriches your life and what we understand Australia to mean uh, coming up here. So it's a, it, in a way, um, it's, it's a quite a unique place in a lot of ways for, um, for Australians to come and, and visit us. And Erwin Rinaldi, what does the Indonesian diaspora look like in other parts of Australia? Well, to be honest with you, maybe this is going to be a little bit different with uh, Vanessa because what I see in Melbourne, for example, Melbourne is pretty much still European-centric and the Indonesian culture uh, plays in Melbourne, it's not that significant and maybe even it's unnoticeable, you know, because Indonesian cultural market in Melbourne, for example, is only serving particular segment for those who are Indonesianists, that's what we call, you know, who have worked, lived or studied in Indonesia before. I mean, it's hard to say um, how Indonesian culture play in Australia. Um, I've been to many Indonesian festivals. I've been covering Indonesian festivals such as Indonesian food festival and film festival. And you know what, James? Many people came there are Indonesians. Isn't it supposed to be more Australians who should come? compared to like Thailand festival or Japanese festival. And maybe this is, should be considered as a constructive feedback for Indonesian representatives here in Australia to be more active to promote the Indonesian culture, for example, you know. Yes. Well, on this score, I want to ask a question of Sadika Maruf. Sadika, there was a, a news poll, that's an opinion poll company in Australia, and they found that 30% of Australians think that Bali is an independent country, not part of Indonesia. Most Australians <laughs> believe Indonesian law is based on Sharia. It's, in fact, based on oh, European wow. du uh -huh. Dutch law, the, uh, the Netherlands. And, of course, uh, most Australians, well, not of course, unfortunately, most Australians think Indonesia is a dictatorship when, in fact, given its circumstances and history, it, along with India, are probably the two beacons of great democracy in the world. Flawed, of course, but beacons nonetheless. Uh, yes. Uh, I mean, listening to that uh, information, I thought those are only, you know, quote-unquote jokes, meaning that if I go to Australia to perform in Australia, I, I will, uh, you know, use that as a joke and that's as far as I think it is you know it's uh, uh, something that is commonly accepted I thought at first it is something that is commonly accepted uh, for both Indonesian and Australian as mentioned by uh, uh, Erwin as well as 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 a joke that we have a common joke of, of Bali as as a separate country I didn't realize that it's actually real meaning that some people actually <laughs> uh, some people actually think that way come to think of it i went to sydney in uh 2016 and i have i've been very fortunate to be able to collaborate with the chaser and uh um you and were given I, an award uh, by them you were given an award <laughs> 
Well, I I I, I was a, a keynote uh, speaker at their uh, fundraising event, and uh, to my surprise, I am Hadrami and Javanese. But the opening uh, entertainment before the keynote address is a Balinese dance. And so, <laughs> and so, oh, well. anyway. it's a thought that counts. Yeah, it, it's a thought. <laughs> of course, of course. Thank you so much, Chase. I, 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 mean, I, I love them. I, I love them so much. They, they taught me a yeah. lot about about comedy and 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 uh, an Australian style of comedy as well. But still, I'm a Muslim in hijab. I'm an Hadrami. I'm a Javanese. And, uh, you know, to introduce your keynote address for tonight, please welcome a Balinese dance. It, 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 it's uh, a little bit ironic, I guess. <laughs> I think you're just jealous because you're not as flexible in your dancing as the Balinese. I guess so, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and Saktia, we've heard about what Australians know of Indonesia. What do Indonesians know of Australia? Are we uh, caricatured? Uh, are we understood? Uh, well, um, there are two, I guess, uh, s- strongest uh, image of uh, uh, Australia. First is those who are in Kuta Beach in in in, in <laughs> Bali. So, quote Australian unquote, drunk, uh, drunk, yes, drunk Australians. But also, we highly recognize uh, Australia as a destination to study. So Melbourne Uni, Sydney Uni, the universities in Darwin. We, uh, it's almost like uh, the way we think of Yogyakarta. Uh, Yogyakarta, we consider all across Indonesia, we agree that Yogyakarta is a city of education. And I think that's what Indonesians think of Australian as well, a country of uh, high quality education. Well, it is a great place to both get an education and get drunk. So uh, you're spot on, sucked in the roof. Next, we move to the uh, divisions that are threatening unity in Indonesia, but also the resolution of them keeping the country together. Indonesia is one country and 17,000 islands. The cultural and linguistic and political diversity is so huge, two questions will likely be on the country's agenda permanently. How does such a country stay politically unified and coherent? And the second question, if part of Indonesia again breaks away, like East Timor did in 1999, what will that mean? for the Indonesia that's left behind, and the new nation itself. Well, West Papua is a province of the Republic of Indonesia, and Jakarta's claim to the sovereignty has been contested ever since 1969, when West Papuans supposedly voted against independence in an election which remains controversial and disputed. We'll hear from the late Clemens Ranawiri, who was a free Papua movement activist, We'll also hear from Ikta Bhakti, a scholar of Indonesian politics. But first, RN's Annabel Quince has been digging through the archives. Here's what she's found from the 1960s in relation to West Papua, or as it was known then, Irian Jaya. A vote of self-determination in 1969 
This is the one concession handed to the Dutch when they yielded their colony to Indonesia five years ago. President Sukarno repudiated the agreement. President Suharto has now reluctantly agreed to play out the diplomatic charade. But West Darien is Indonesian, he says. The vote will be a mere formality. The act of free choice was conducted through 1,025 representatives handpicked by the Indonesians and not through a ballot of all West Papuans. The act of free choice remains a contentious issue till today because of the 1,025, only 117 spoke. Can you imagine that? 1,025 who have been rounded up and placed in special dormitories, special uh, places, indoctrinated on what and what not to say. The military, Indonesian military at that time, 1969, had already established a very clear guidelines on, on how to to win the act of free choice. We got a confidential letter written by the uh, Morocco Regency or District Territorial Commander, military commander. And that letter set down the, uh, the guidelines to be used in ensuring that the outcome of the act of free choice was in favor of Jakarta. And the criteria for handpicking the people, they said, pick individuals who first and foremost must be loyal to Jakarta, right? So the first criteria is pick any individual, but so long as she or he is loyal to Jakarta, that's one. Secondly, that once that person has been identified and appointed, authorities can then place her or him to represent a mass or political organization, including a union, or representing a region, or representing tribal groups. This is the whole thing that I have termed it as a carefully designed show. From the start, it's a foregone conclusion that the outcome is for Jakarta's interest. According to the New York agreements, the act of free choice will be implemented in accordance to the international practice. Yeah? And uh, there is no word that the uh, act of free choice will be undertaken through one man, one vote. The Indonesian governments and the Dutch governments in the end come into agreements in Rome in 1968 yeah, that the implementations of the act of free choice will be undertaken through the representative people of the West Papuan. The other criticism is that, that there was a lot of pressure applied on those 1,025 representatives, that actually they weren't really given any choice but to vote the way they voted. Yeah, I think the uh, Indonesian government at that time tried to persuade, yeah, persuade the Papuan leaders to vote for Indonesia. The persuasions, for example, they uh, took the Papuan leaders to Jakarta by the Hercules uh, airplane, yeah? and then they also took them to, I think, to the United States yeah? to show that uh, they supported Indonesian government. And in some cases, the Indonesian government also provided them with transistor radio, yeah? Philips LLL4. Yeah? But I think at that time, Quite a few of Papuan leaders still rejected 
to support Indonesia. And because of that, I do believe that the military people in West Papua at that time uh, tried to push them to vote for Indonesia. That's Professor Ikra Bhakti from the Indonesian Institute for Sciences based in Jakarta. Before that, we heard from the late Clemens Ranawari, a former activist from the Free Papua Movement. We'll put a link up to that full episode on our God forbid website. Well, Vanessa Hirman, for nearly 60 years, this low-intensity guerrilla war has been taking place to Australia's immediate north. Why is the West Papuan independence movement back in the news? Well, because of there being a, um, a new movement developing in response to some attacks on a group of students in East Java, Papuan students, who were staying in a boarding house where uh, they came into conflict with um, some of the local residents over the issue of raising the flag or not on Indonesian Independence Day. Uh, The West Papuan flag? No, the Indonesian flag. So there is an expectation in Indonesia on particular days that the flag will be raised by every household. And... um, in protest, the the students were trying to draw attention to what was happening in in Papua by uh, talking about not raising their flag, and this brought a barrage of attacks on them from the local residents who called the monkeys and other racial slurs, and this ignited uh, feeling in West Papua and among. Papuan students who were studying on other islands in Indonesia, they felt that they were being treated in a racist and discriminatory way because of their dark skin. They hail from a Melanesian race, which is quite different to the majority Javanese people. So this uh, led to more and more protests throughout West Papua, uh, and it, it was becoming a some kind of an uprising where people were were involved in demonstrations, uh, high school students, and so on, and and to 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 put back on the agenda the question of uh, where the West Papuans belong um, in their own uh, territory, I suppose, and uh, what was the place of the West Papuan people within the Indonesian national landscape. So that's why we're seeing that back on the news again. So we turn to now Sadia Maruf for an Indonesian, a non-Melanesian Indonesian perspective. Sadia, how prominently do independence movements uh, like Aceh or West Papua how prominently do they figure in the minds of ordinary Indonesians? Well, uh, young people especially are getting more and more aware of these issues as uh, many activists are uh, going online and doing their campaigning on, on social media. Then I think this awareness and also how government respond to this awareness will be the testament of how committed we are as a nation to move forward with uh, the promise of reformacy and also the promise of uh, democracy in Indonesia. Now, but, not, just, but do you support yeah. the idea of West Papua breaking away from Indonesia? I would say I do not have a deep knowledge and understanding of that, but I think uh, I, I share a similar sentiment with many young people of Indonesia that do not have as deep understanding 
on the issue that before we say whether we agree or disagree, the most important thing is for us to be very well informed about the situation. So for the issue to be freely discussed or the information to be open for journalists, for instance, and only then we can have uh, our informed say. And and last word on this before we get to the uh, fierce contest of the quiz. Erwin Rinaldi, the uh, senior ABC journalist from the Asia-Pacific Asia Newsroom. Erwin, what's your take on, on, on separatism? Uh, you've been covering this? Yes. Well, ABC, uh, the Asia-Pacific Newsroom, and particularly ABC Indonesia. I, I also work for the ABC in Indonesian language. We call ABC Indonesia. We've been covering this issue many times. And I tell you, James, Many Indonesians, this is what we've seen on uh, social media comments on Twitter and Facebook, they denied the report and accused the ABC, we have hidden agenda. And I said, uh, sometimes the Indonesian people, they don't really quite understand between Australians as a government, Australian government, who, well, support Indonesian, right? And then ABC as an independent news service and also the West Papuan activists in Australia and Indonesians in Australia, they are fed up with the pro-Papuan activists in Australia because many Indonesians who say, you know, the Morning Star flag is actually represent a betrayal of the national motto unity in diversity. And often the Indonesians in Australia feel that our voice never been really, you know, heard. So that, that's why the ABC Indonesia, we gave them the platform. What do, they, what do you think? You know, because uh, every year in Sydney, in Melbourne, uh, they have the in Morning Star flag ceremony, right? And last year was a little bit controversy because the ceremony took place in one of the council in Sydney. And I asked uh, the Sydney-based Indonesian community, and they're also like a supporter of Joko Widodo. So you can tell they're very nationalistic, you know. And then uh, they said that it's, it's really hurt their feeling. And then I asked the Indonesian Consulate General in Sydney, and they said, you know, it regrets that the council allowed a symbol of separatism, the Morning Star flag, to be raised, because it, it's going to be giving a signal of a misinterpretation to represent support from the Australian government. So it's been very, very complicated, I would say, because... We, we, we need also to be considered that in Indonesia, we have like a, a, a motto. We call it uh, NKRI Harga Mati. You know, it means like, even if the cost is death, we are supporting Indonesia. So that's sort of like a mentality that we need to be really considered, James. Yes. Well, that is, of course, the challenge for such a large and diverse and populated country, especially in West Papua, where, according to some studies, most people aren't even aware they are in Indonesia. Uh, but such is the uh, remoteness in parts of the highlands in West Papua. Look, we're going to the quiz next, and uh, we'll find out the winner then, won't we? Wits and... Yes, it's God forbid the wits end quiz. As always, we begin with the buzzers and ABC journalist Erwin Rinaldi from the Asia-Pacific News Desk. Test your buzzer. <laughs> Erwin, do you know what that sound is? Uh, no, to be honest. 
What's that? Do you know Sakthiya? Uh, on Telolet Om. It, it went viral globally. <laughs> yeah, this is... It's it's the craze in Indonesia. Young people stand on the footpath encouraging bus drivers to toot those distinctive horns that only Indonesian buses have. Yeah. It became a viral <laughs> video craze. Yes. Oh. Now We now have to get to the other buzzers. And uh, Indonesia's best female stand-up comedian is Sakdia Maruf. Sakdia, test your buzzer. Getting a haircut for hijabi is like wearing oh a wonder bra. <laughs> That's actually you. Why, if you wear a hijab, is getting a haircut like wearing a wonder bra? Uh, it, my answer would be it enhances our inner beauty. Like, <laughs> it's inside. Yes. Well, um, that's your buzzer. Let's finally get to the buzzer of our Darwin-based Indonesia expert, Dr. Vanessa Heerman. Test your buzzer. Why? I stuck a cracker up my clacker. And just oh <laughs> to recognise that, Vanessa? Yes, absolutely. It's, it's the um, yes, front of cover of the NT News. Exactly, the famous headline from the Northern Territory News. Who can ever forget why they stuck a cracker up my clacker? Here's the lead story. Here's the lead sentence. A man who suffered serious burns when friends lit a firecracker in his bum says he was just showing his visiting mates a territory good time. And what a good time it was. They got a Walkley Award for that good time. <laughs> Buzzers are working. Now, here's the f- first official question for, for each of you, Vanessa Saktia Erwin. The president of Indonesia is Jukawi, though his name was changed to Joko Widodo. Why? Cracker, up my clacker. Because he uh, wasn't feeling well when he was a child, so they changed his name to another one. Vanessa, you have it exactly right. He was often sick as a toddler, oh, the president of Indonesia. Oh, wow. Exactly. I didn't know. It, it was just a lucky guess, I promise. I didn't look it up or anything. An educated <laughs> guess, because a common practice in Javanese culture is, is to change names. Yeah, and Joko Widodo, Widodo meaning healthy. And, 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 you know, he was sick as a boy, so change his name to healthy and it should work. It did. I don't know whether that was the cause, but he's a healthy man now. Next question. Before Indonesia became a democracy, President Suharto was in charge. According to Transparency International, how much money did he steal during his term in office? Oh, my gosh. (laughs) Hang on. A lot? Um, (laughs) Million, million, no, a billion dollars. 16 billion. 16? Oh, my God, Vanessa, we got a lot from Satya. We got millions or billions from Erwin and from you, Vanessa. We got the correct answer, 15 to 35 US billion dollars. In 2004, he was ranked Sohato as the most corrupt leader on earth. But how far, how much Indonesia has changed since then? Next question. When was the first recorded contact between Indonesians and Australians? Oh, I should know this one. Before 1770, so it's way before. According to what I have, Erwin, we'll call you close enough, but I have the people from Makassar, which is in Sulawesi. They visited the Kimberley region and Arnhem Land since 1720, maybe earlier, to trade in trepang. What's trepang, Sakti? Sea cucumber. Sea cucumber. Uh, do you cucumber. eat? Do you like sea cucumber? Yes, I eat it. Good. Very good. Okay, next question. Uh, the Aboriginal yes. people of northeast Northern Territory, Arnhem Land, speak Yolnu. What do the Yolnu words balanda, meaning white person, jama, 
meaning work, and rupiah, meaning money, have in common in the indigenous they're language. They're Indonesians. They're, they're Malay. Yeah, three correct answers. Three correct answers from three expert panelists. They are all borrowed from the Malay language, which was spoken by Makassan seafarers at the time before European arrival in Australia. Oh. Next question. Oh. On the island of Lombok, next to Bali, there's an unusual form of Islam. What makes it so strange? No, no, I don't know. This is the answer. <laughs> I don't, oh my God, this is terrible. I don't know. I'll, I'll, I'll oh give you a clue. I'll, I'll give you a clue. We're talking about Wetutalu Muslims. Yes, it's a, it, there's some Hinduism mixed into mm. it. Is that right? The difference I have is they only pray three times a day rather than the five times that most Muslims believe is stipulated in the Quran. Oh. Oh. There you go. And the saddest news is it means the show's come to an end. But but thank you so much oh. for being... Yeah, you've informed us so much, Saktiya Vanessa Irwin. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much, Thank you. James. Thank you so much. Thank you. Sakti Maruf is an Indonesian stand-up comedian and uh, she's the winner of the Vaclav Havel Prize for Creative Descent. Dr. Vanessa Heerman is a senior lecturer in Indonesian studies at Charles Darwin University. She's the author of Unmarked Graves, Death and Survival in Anti-Communist Violence in East Java, Indonesia. Sadly, that was a topic we didn't get to in any length this program. Also, Erwin Rinaldi is a final panellist, a senior journalist at the ABC's Asia-Pacific newsroom in Melbourne. All three, I thank you very much indeed. Don't forget you can subscribe to the God Forbid podcast on the ABC Listen app. You can email me at godforbid at abc.net.au. I'm James Carlton. Until next week, remember to be good. It's God Forbid. God Forbid.